in the church, okay? Amen, that's great. Okay, we're going to go into uh, Acts chapter, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And uh, I went to Stonely a few years back, well, many years back. Hands up if you've been to Stonely. Oh, my goodness. The tribe is still together, right. And uh, it was an amazing sermon that C.J. Mahaney preached, and it, was, it made me weak with laughter, but brought me up short. His sermon was called, People God Killed. <laughs> <laughs> and he went through the Bible looking at the way in which God had said, you know, don't stand on my way, sunshine, or rather, you know, come and bow before me. And um, we have to obviously get that right. You know, people doesn't go, God doesn't go around randomly killing people. Please keep my theology right. But if, but if uh, you look through the Bible, you find that there is a holiness that uh, if you stand up against that holiness and you're obstructing the work of God, well, there is a thing called a severe mercy. I'll put it at that. But uh, we're going to look into that today with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. But we get a little clip at the end of chapter four about a guy who gave out of sheer generosity of heart this wonderful guy in biblical history called Joseph of Cyprus, the Levite, also known as... Oh, you're such students of the word. Barnabas, yeah. So Barnabas gets it right in terms of saying, come on, just giving, giving. So I could make my sermon today all about generosity and giving, but actually I want to home in on the lesson out of Ananias and Sapphira, who held back some money. Now, there's nothing wrong with holding back some money, as we'll see, but it's the heart that God's after. And they, they well, let's read the story, shall we? So let's go to Acts chapter 4. It should come up. I'm reading from the um, New Living Translation. And uh, this is how um, the believers shared their possessions in a wonderful way when the church was just making such strong progress in those early years. They've seen this miracle of a, a, a crippled beggar healed and Peter and John have been dragged before the council and they've been released and it's caused an amazing boldness in them. And we talked last week, if you've been following this wonderful act series about boldness, and we, we feel that there are things happening to us as a church that we are increasingly saying, Lord, Holy Spirit, come amongst us. Do what you want to do from minute number one in this meeting, right through. We're not going to box you in. And so we're increasingly asking for that. But we're also aware of the holiness of God, the majesty of God, and the awesome nature of who it is that we're worshipping. And uh, our praise reflected that this morning. How thrilling to hear that praise. How thrilling for the doors to be flung open and for motorists to veer onto the verge and hear this heavenly singing. So, <laughs> how's our liability insurance? All good, David Gamester? Is it all good? Okay, cool, good. Okay, here we go. Let's read it then. So, the believers share their possessions. Chapter 4 of Acts, verse 32. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. And there were no needy people among them, because those who owned lands or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field and, which he owned and brought the money to the apostles. But it's interesting how this however word 
it brings in a rather sinister note at the beginning of chapter five. So we know we're heading into darker waters, that word but right at the start. But there was a certain man named Ananias who was with, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. And then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. And as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. And then some young men got up and wrapped him in a sheet and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could you, the two of you, even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Oh Lord, may we understand this amazing passage and understand that to fear you is to love you and that to fear you is to fear nothing else in life. Help us, Lord. Amen. So you've got in verse 29 of chapter 4 an amazing thing where the church say, hear the Sanhedrin's threats and give your servants great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power, Lord. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So the church is on a roll. They, they are gathering converts by the thousands, literally. And what happens is that the community breaks out in spontaneous prayer, declaring the sovereignty of God, asking for more of God's strength and spirit. Because there's no way the Sanhedrin can, can suppress this miracle that's happened in chapter 3. And now, with Peter being released and John being released, the Sanhedrin can't disregard the significance of what's going on in the early church. They can't overcome the predetermined plan of God. And, they, and no power still can today. And the, person, the believer's personal safety, amazingly, took second place to the fulfilling of God's plans. Isn't that going to be amazing when one day that happens to us, that our personal safety takes second place to the fulfilling of God's plans? It's coming. One day, we don't know when, but God will fill us with his Holy Spirit and the church will become purer and purer and all streams will flow together as one and then the end will come and I'm right off my notes. So what happened is that when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, they not only became wonderful prayers and full of boldness, they became incredibly generous. And that's a hallmark of a healthy church is generosity. And I'm, not, I, I'm going to talk about the fear of the Lord, but it, let's just mark that, that what Barnabas did was wonderful. They, the Barnabas said, I don't want anyone in this community to be without the necessities of life. 
We want that spirit amongst us. Everything belongs to you, Lord. You've got the lot. And therefore, we give to each other. We've all got the lot, whatever that means. No one's going to be needy here. And this is going to spread abroad as well as this church uh, lives in generosity of spirit. And so you get this famous man in church, church history, Barnabas. He's selling land and bringing money to the apostles. And he gives it all to them to do as they will. But despite such generous events, the early church is still struggling with sin. And we've had a bit of a taster of that this morning that, you know, all of us, whether it's people on the platform or people in the, in the serried ranks of King's Church, you know, we all struggle. Lord, keep my heart right. And in the early church, there was sin. Even despite these extraordinary miracles, people were messing up. And uh, every now and again, we need something to shock us into reality. It's so easy to come and be the gathered saints together week by week by week. And you can get into a rather complacent routine, even, even amongst our good selves who are saying, Lord, you've got my heart, and yet we can begin to be a bit sleepy. We can begin to lose our fervency and our fire starts to grow dim and we're not reading our Bible like we used to. We're not really praying, we're skipping stuff. And, we're, and before we know it, we need something to shock us back into reality. It's so easy to coast along, isn't it? Am I the only one who feels that? It's easy to coast. And you can easily, as a church, get a false sense of security. Oh, well, we're all right. And we fail to spot the warning signs of problems ahead. And Ananias and Sapphira were in that camp. They'd seen all this great early success in Acts 2 and Acts 3. Heaven is all around them. And then we find this shocking thing happen in chapter 5. And Barnabas's simple and transparent generosity turns into an act which is rather deceitful. It's dark. It's unrighteous. Let's, let's look a little more closely at it because Ananias and Sapphira went through exactly the same actions as Barnabas. They sold property and they brought part of the money to the apostles. Now, the, the problem was that Ananias and Sapphira presented only part of the money to the apostles, yet they pretended that it represented all of the proceeds. So it wasn't about the amount given, it was about their hearts pretending they, thank you, preach it, sister, lying, right? So they pretended, they pretended that they were sacrificing like Barnabas. And so they thought that pleasing the apostles and looking good in front of these guys is somehow counted for something. So their hearts were turned away from this clean spirit of generosity. You know, you would imagine Peter saying to them, look, you gain nothing spiritually by fooling me. You, we don't, so... <laughs> Here comes the sermon, people God killed. Ananias falls to the floor and dies. Now, I will say this, but I have, I have a hunch that this doesn't mean the end for Ananias. He was saved. He messed up. Now, I wonder, what do you think about this? You have to think this through for yourself. But I think that Ananias would still have gone to meet his saviour because the blood of Jesus avails for every sin. And okay, he messed up, but actually, we're not going to stand in judgment on him. We don't know. We, we want to understand righteousness that comes through faith. He had faith. He was made right before God. So although this seems like a very hard thing to happen, be careful. We don't know 
Ananias into the glory of God. Who knows? And so when Sophia turns up three hours later, she is looking for praise from the apostles. Her heart's in a wrong place. She's trying to look good. And Peter gives her time to be honest. I love the way Peter dealt with it. You know, Sapphira, look at me. Tell me that, you know, he's whispered, tell me the truth. Be straight with me. And he could not have been more direct in his question. He gives her so much time, he gives her opportunity to be honest in verse 8. But tragically, her heart's somewhere else. She just wants to look good, she, but she wants to keep some money back. Now, let, let's come back to that because Ananias and Sapphira, I believe, were motivated by pride. They wanted to appear generous like others in the church, but they didn't say this, and I picked this up from one of the commentaries, which is so helpful. If they'd said this, Peter, we're bringing you a sum of money. We're bringing it for God's glory, for his purposes only. We want you to know that we've actually received more than this. And we, but we need to keep the rest of it because we've got pressing needs of our own. We don't want you to think that we're kind of in the same league as Barnabas, giving it all away. Sadly, we do actually still need to use some of the proceeds on some essential stuff of our own. But please, Peter, use this portion of money as you think fit. Now that would have been beautiful. That would have been humble, that would have been honest, and that would have been appropriate for their situation. But the trouble is she backs God into a corner by not coming truthful about it. She says that, yes, this is all of it, and this now gives God a problem because now, he's now a silent accomplice to this blatant pride and lying. And within moments, Sophia joins her husband. And I've written here in my notes, beyond the boundaries of this world. It's my belief that they went into the, into the heavenly kingdom. Because God's like that with those who have repented. We mess up, all of us mess up. We've, uh, Andy is so eloquently leading us into the beautiful truth of justification by faith. So we don't point fingers at people in this church. What happens next is a fear and an awe grips the church. And the holiness and the power of God is very present. The power to do what he likes with each one of us and the holiness of God has come very close to the early church. This is a wake-up call, don't get complacent. It's a wake-up call to me and my friends in this church. This is a sobering shock back into the reality of who God is. Because God's grace does not make him soft on sin. We've got to say that to each other. In these days where we're trying to do everything, you know, with political correctness, God's grace is not soft on sin. And therefore, for each one of us, we need to read that book that we bought. There are something like 10 copies in the bookshop called Rejoice and Tremble by Michael Reeve. I've asked for it especially. I've been reading it, finding myself having to go down this road of the fear of God today. That book, there are some copies in the bookshop called Rejoice and Tremble by Michael Reeve. There is a warning for us all. He is still the holy God who deals powerfully with our rebellious ways. But I will just say this. I'll read, read to you from Ezekiel 
because some of you might be struggling a little bit with this, thinking, what's God like? I didn't know he killed people. But this is all part of this demonstration of his holiness, to keep the church on track, to keep the church humbly, because there's some glories coming ahead in Acts, and we've got to not to be puffed up with pride. We've got to be humble before our God and depend on him in holiness and transparency. This is what, this is what God says in Ezekiel chapter 18. He says this, Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behaviour, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. But if wicked people turn away from all their sins and begin to obey my decrees and do what is just and right, they will surely live and not die. All their past sins will be forgotten, and they will live because of the righteous things they have done. Do you think that I like to see wicked people die? says the Sovereign Lord. This is back in the Old Testament, guys. Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. However, if a righteous person turns from their righteous behaviour and starts doing sinful things and acts like other sinners, should they be allowed to live? You must read on in Ezekiel 18. But the beautiful, generous heart of God is there right through both Testaments. What's this telling us? It's telling us, dear church family, that we must maintain our personal integrity. That we must make truth a priority in every aspect of our lives. So the searchlight of God, coming to me, I am not six feet above contradiction, though I may be three feet off the ground. The searchlight of God is upon us this morning. He is a holy God. And we have a just reason to fear him. We must cultivate a lifestyle of transparency and genuineness. You will know people that are like that. You can spot it a mile off. People are humble and genuine and transparent. The opposite of hypocrisy. This is also telling us that we have a responsibility to maintain a clear conscience. No veil of secrecy. We are cultivating righteousness in this church. In a world out there that is dominated by deception, it's dominated by the twisting of events, by lies, by people making themselves look good with no justification, self-justification. The lawyer, in the, the lawyer on your shoulder, when everyone says to you, I think you didn't do very well there, immediately I'm self-justifying myself. It's my flesh. It cries out to make me look good. But Romans 14, 7 says this, no, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. So Ananias and Sapphira were part of a community and what they did in community affected the rest of them. So a little leaven in the lump starts to go all the way through. So we are, we are in some way affected by what each other do. That's quite scary. None of us lives to himself. No, nothing that we do eventually gets tucked away Truth comes out. The truth sets us free. Truth is always flushed out eventually. And so if you're in a sin of pride and hypocrisy, it will always involve somebody else. You can't just do pride and hypocrisy on your own. 
And it's so encouraging when you get someone like Andy, who's an elder in this church, who says, you know, I admit my struggles. Thank you, Andy, for doing it. It's perfect for my sermon. You didn't know. All right, it's perfect because when someone's facing difficulties and temptations, that's the same as me. Wonderful. Oh, the leveling of the grace of God. Oh, I feel better now. I'm not on my own. I don't need to put on a mask. I don't need to pretend to have it all together. That's how God designed the church. Isn't that beautiful? You're in a very safe place. Now in conclusion, let's talk about the fear of the Lord. Reverence or fear of God himself. Fear gripped the church at that point. It's hard to try and imagine what that would have been like for two of their members of that church to have died in front of everybody else and the holy fear of God comes upon everybody. Do you know, let me ask you this question. When was the last time you came to a church meeting when you genuinely felt afraid of God's holiness? It's not something we're used to. I remember, I might have told you this before, when back in my early days as a Christian, I used to go to meetings that scared the living daylights out of me because I hadn't seen the power of God in action. I hadn't seen healings. I hadn't, I hadn't heard singing in tongues. I hadn't seen saints all gathered together worshipping. And I hadn't seen prophetic words coming out as if fire's coming out of a man's mouth. And it's the oracles of God himself. It scared me to death in a good way. And I remember thinking, I'm coming to another one of these great celebration meetings and I, I need to confess every known sin. You know, I, I did that when I boarded aircraft as well. <laughs> but, but I would also go to these meetings where the palpable sense of the presence of God was so strong, you were afraid. And I want that here. I want people to come in and say, what is here? What is happening in this room? I, I've got this palpable sense of the, what, what the theologians call the numinous, the power of God, the presence of God, the transcendent and imminent, using the theology words, he's far above us, but he's very close. But the wrong sort of fear is a crippling fear. And people have come today in fear about all sorts of things. We agonize over all the kind of dreadful things that happen to us could happen to us, might happen in the future, to us and our loved ones. And fear is the strongest human emotion, isn't it? Fear is that nasty one. We're all afraid of fear. And um, you only need to pick up the paper or look, uh, look in the news today to understand that there seem to be more reasons to worry than ever before. And laws that govern health and safety. And here's the irony. All those laws that have come in, which are good and helpful laws, but actually they make us more risk averse. They make us more afraid than ever, even down to playing a game of conquers. All right. <laughs> we are living more safely than ever before, but now we realise, ironically, we're feeling more and more vulnerable. COVID? No, I won't go there. That's, that divides people, so I won't go there. But you can have insurance for practically anything, can't you? Look at, look at building regulations today. Look at, you know, even on village greens, if you whack a cricket ball and it lands on someone's head, you're in lots of trouble. There are, there's all sorts of health and safety words. The paradox of a safe society is that it encourages us to be timid and afraid. So we now medicate that fear in all sorts of ways. 
And by the way, there's nothing wrong with antidepressants. It can buy you very precious time. I'll just say that here. But you know why we've got these fears? Because there was a prior loss of the real right fear that went right back in human history and that prior loss was the fear of God. Adam's love and fear of God. And God is the proper object of all our fear. The fear of God is our antidote to fearfulness. Can you hear that? Ananias and Sapphira simply did not fear God and walk in holy awe of what was happening all around them. That fear of a holy, loving God is actually a happy fear. Can you put those two words together? I just have. They're looking it up right now. It's a happy fear. It's not a neurotic fear. It's a beautiful fear. It's a fear that controls all other fears in your life. It holds back anxiety. If you've lost God as your healthy fear, you've become someone ever more anxious about the future and the unknown. You're anxious, you're becoming anxious about anything and everything. What was, what was Ananias and Sapphira's fear? Was it a fear of poverty? Was it what I said earlier about it just trying to look good and then fall into the sin of pride? What we are to enjoy is what Martin Luther called a filial fear, which is that of a son or a daughter who knows that their father loves them so much they're frightened of the power of that love. You love me so much, I tremble. I had a, a, a spaniel dog back when my kids were growing up. And when I was about to feed her, she started to tremble. <laughs> it was the cutest sign, her little floppy ears started to, you know, but, but she, <laughs> she tried to only feed her once, at, once a day. You know it's right. Come on. Okay. And, um, and she would just start to shake with pleasure. It reminds me of Reepy Cheep. I'm right off course now in my notes. But Reepy Cheep, who was, was in his little coracle sailing to the emperor overseas in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And he gets lowered down into the coracle by Lucy. And he is quivering with happiness says C.S. Lewis. We are to quiver with happiness, like my dog who's being fed. My best moment in the day. <laughs> the answer to Ananias and Sapphira is not to make people afraid of God in a servile fear, like a slave, frightened of their master, but in a filial fear where you just know, my father has only good things for me. I'm so overwhelmed by his goodness, it scares me. If someone loves you with a passion, with a fierce, wild passion, it does something to you, doesn't it? And I hope that every single person in this room has felt that at one point in their lives. That, that love overwhelms you. You're not, almost frightened of it. That's our God. This holy God is awesome and he is to be feared. And if you are an unbeliever in this room today, you, you are right to be afraid of what I'm talking about. Can I say that very carefully? If you're, a f if you're angry with God and you're spitting at him at the moment and you don't really believe in him and some bad things have happened in your life and you're finding what I'm talking about very difficult, and deep in your heart, you're afraid. That's the wrong kind of fear. And God wants to do something beautiful today. If that's you, he wants to reach deep down into your heart and 
draw you to himself and for you to have the right type of fear, that of that great love that wants to envelop you and embrace you in his arms today, healing all your hurts, healing all your sadness and all your fears. His love goes with his holiness. I'm going to read you a little bit of a story. Now, it's not C.S. Lewis. You'd be surprised to know. I wonder how many of you know where I'm reading from. There is a rat and a mole who are going to see if they can find the god Pan, who is the good god of all woodland creatures, all wild things. And rat and mole are going to meet their god. And they're paddling down the river in a book called... Yeah, The Wind in the Widows. Okay. And they get near to Pan, the god, who is the piper at the gates of dawn. So it's his early morning. Suddenly, the mole felt a great awe fall upon him. An awe that turned his muscles to water. He bowed his head and his feet were rooted to the ground. It was no panic terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy. But it was an awe that smote and held him. And without seeing, he knew that it could only mean that some presence was very, very near. With difficulty, he turned to look for his friend, Rat, and saw him at his side, trembling violently. And still there was utter silence in the bird-haunted branches, all around them and still the light grew and grew perhaps he would never have dared to raise his eyes but that though the piping was now hushed the call and the summons was so strong he might not refuse were death himself waiting to strike him instantly once he had looked with mortal eye on things rightly kept hidden trembling he obeyed and raised his humble head and then in that utter clearness of the dawn, while nature was flushed with colour, he seemed to hold his breath for the event and he looked into the very eyes of the friend and helper. And as he looked, he lived. And still as he lived, he wondered. Rat, he found breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid? murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love, afraid of him. Oh, never, never, and yet, and yet, oh mole, I am afraid. I could stop there. One day the earth is going to shake with pleasure because it will no longer be subjected to death and decay. One day we're going to all be overcome by the glory of God. We're going to be so impacted that we think we're, first we're going to die and then we're going to tremble and then we're going to be unable to stand. A bit like in 2 Chronicles 7 when the priests saw the glory of God fall in the temple. All they could do was go to their knees and say, he's good, he's good, his mercy endures forever, he's good, he's good. When they saw the Shekinah glory come down, all they could say, he's good. This is not a fear to be afraid of. 
This is a fear to fall in love with. We will finally one day be purified and we will behold God clearly. I don't even know what I'm talking about. We will become like him, made entirely like Christ at last. We shall become fearfully and wonderfully made for eternity. We will become glorious with a glory that has come from the outside and has come upon us. Beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, the saints will be awesome as an army with banner. If I'd read to you from the Narnia stories, I'd have said this, Aslan is on the move. Jesus is on the move here. And what I'm going to ask for now is for a holy fear to come upon us. Are you ready for this? Not sure I am. Well done. Shall we just ask for a holy fear to come upon the church? The reason I ask for this is because we must have holiness. You know that acronym, WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get. You know that one? What we've got to be is those people. There's a psychology term called congruent. In other words, what you are on the inside is what you are on the outside. You're congruent. You're real people. You're really you. Free. Set free by the love of God. But that scares the life out of me. It's so beautiful and thrilling. Shall we pray for some fear to come upon us? Because once you fear him, you will walk out of here fearing nothing else. Because he's looking after you. He's with you. He will bring you home safely. Rose's funeral, Thanksgiving, my oh my. Think of, think of Nigel. Think of Elizabeth. Think of the relatives of Pam Hinks. They're in glory. Those three saints, those three saints who we've just lost, not lost, but gone before, come fear of God. Known as the fear in the Old Testament, the fear of Isaac. What a name. What is it about you, Lord, that I fear? I fear your beauty. I fear your goodness. I fear your holiness. I fear my own mortality and my fleshliness. I fear that I'm just terracotta, a clay pot. But you choose to dwell in me, as we've heard this morning. You want to put your Holy Spirit in me? Yes, you do. So fear of God, come into each one of us afresh. And for those who need to be brought up short, bring them up short, Lord, but treat tenderly with them, please. Please, please do it carefully, Lord. Those who need a shock, shock them, Lord, but do it, please, Lord. Salvage them. Don't let them sink. Oh, God, look after them, Lord, if you're going to shock them. If you're going to bring some bad news to someone to wake them up, Lord, be there when they fall. You're the safety net. Do what you want to do, Lord. Expose sin in our church that we might rise a radiant, beautiful church that is full of the glory and the power of God with boldness and love and not a smug, self-righteous person amongst us but lowly and gentle like you, full of grace and entreaty. Oh, fear of God, come upon us again. 
Just dispel complacency, Lord. I'm just going to be quiet for a moment now. You do business with God. Whatever might have triggered something in you, just be quiet now. And do your dealings with the holy God. He is an all-consuming fire, and that fire is a fire of love for you that meant that he went to the cross because the fires of his love could, love could never be dampened by Gethsemane, betrayal, scourging, crucifixion did not put out the fire of his love for you. Each one of us stands before you, in one sense, on our own right now, Lord. I haven't got my mum to hide behind. Each one of us stands or falls by his own heart, her own heart. Lord, my heart is good towards you. And I know my weaknesses. But my heart is good and true to you, Lord. Help me. Help me. You are the great and mighty God. And I bow before you. And I tremble. I tremble at the love that you hold in your heart for me. I look over my shoulder and think you're looking past me, but you're looking at me. Oh, Father. Father, you are amazing. And we pray for each other now that we will live in a fear that dispels all other fears. Come, Holy Spirit, and draw us into your holy heart. Thank you, Lord. Can we have the band come back? Just, we just want to come in to sing our devotion. I'm not sure which song will fit but Caleb and um, band and Mandy shall we let's make our response in song um, one of the hallmarks of revival is singing and if you again my book of the decade sounds from heaven which I keep banging on about the Hebridean revival the singing was like fire when the, when the Holy Spirit came upon that Hebridean community, the singing was like nothing else. It was like the presence of God himself. There was singing and then there was singing. And I've heard it this morning. And we want to come before him in song and devote ourselves to him afresh in all his holiness and beauty. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's sing. Let's stand together, if you're okay, able to. Hand over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus.